Welcome to Machine Learning. This book is called Dollar Crisis. It's one of the all-time great books that I've read. The author starts off by saying, gold trade created equilibrium in the trade deficit. Here's how it worked. Gold leaves the country to pay for the commodity. Since gold leaves credit would have to contract, the economy would recede prices would become cheaper and gold would enter back into the country as exports of cheap products were purchased by foreign countries with gold payments. The inflow and outflow of gold would seek equilibrium. A country experiencing a trade imbalance would accumulate more gold. The surplus would be credit. Expanding credit would feel an economic boon, provoke inflating prices and inflated prices would slow down, exports and imports would rise. Gold reserves prevent large budget deficits. With only a limited amount of credit available to the government, borrowing would drive up interest rates, making it more difficult for business to borrow money. The government would crowd out the private sector with its borrowing. Government deficits also tend to result in trade deficits and gold outflows. Initially, the government spending would stimulate the economy and imports increase in line with the growth of the economy. However, as gold left the country, recession pressures, pressures would return, gold would leave the country, interest rates rise, and prices fall. Recognizing the undesirable effect deficit spending would have on the economy, the government would attempt to maintain a balanced budget as long as the country was at peace. Brent Woods created a fixed exchange rate system in which the U.S. dollar was pegged to the dollar at $35 an ounce. The value of the dollar was backed by the gold reserves of the United States. The 1960s represented a breakdown with heavy investment overseas and rapid increasing expenditures from the Vietnam War contributing to the country's balance of payments. Foreign countries found themselves holding dollars and began to exchange the dollars for gold reserves. In 1971, the gold flow was small, but by 1973, the flow was a torrent. In 73, Nixon suspended the gold for dollars policy and open competition for currencies to be traded against other foreign currencies. So the dollar then becomes a commodity and its strength is in terms of other currencies, whether people are exchanging uh, foreign currencies for dollars or dollars for foreign currencies. The rate at which the ex exchange is occurring determines the strength or weakness of the dollar. Credit overheated when backed by the dollar and not gold, creating a $3 trillion bubble. Bubble economies overheat, hyperinflate, and burst, leaving their governments in political disarray and deep in debt. Large inflows of foreign investment are stored in banks, and banks use the money to create credit. Monetary authorities sell bonds yielding rates to the public to soak up the undesirable liquidity and reduce the money supply. Foreign assets in banks cause the money supply to rise. 
Asian monetary authorities failed to regulate their foreign inflow of money and banks generated credit leading to hyperinflated land prices. Debt has replaced gold as a debt reserve. Credit there is now currently $2 trillion in debt. Credit held off deflation and as two, that two trillion is probably ten times that today. Um, foreign countries allowed debt instruments to be used for goods and services, but eventually, the credit will be no good. Credit cannot extend forever. New currencies to purchasing for assets is possible as government issues bonds to create high-powered money. In 1980, the U.S. had $4 trillion credit market, and by 2001, the credit amount was $29 trillion. The imbalance of the trades created a credit expansion. For example, Japanese banks used the trade imbalance to increase the money supply 356% in the 1960s, and by the end of 2001, the U.S. held one point or $2.3 trillion in indebtedness to the rest of the world, or 23% of the GDP, and $500 billion surplus was reinvested into U.S. dollar-denominated assets. One could argue that credit growth is equivalent to GDP growth and therefore manageable. And what I said in the previous podcast is if uh, credit growth rate exceeds the gross national product rate, then the markets will correct and you have mania, panic, and a crash. Uh, Growth is the function of corporate profitability and profit alone sustains the growth, not debt. With debt, um, provide short-term benefits, but long-term debt uh, slows growth. Private investment rises more when consumption during the strong economic growth and personal consumption makes up the majority of demand in all major economies. In the 1990s, experienced larger GDP than normal as increased share of private investment purchased software equipment from dot-coms and telecoms. As financial credit worthiness worsened, credit extension slowed down, expanding only 2% in 2002. Hard hit by credit troubles, companies were quick to fire employees. Unemployment between October 2000 and June 2002 rose to 8 million and the rates rose to 5.9%. Consumer indebtedness is filling consumption in the US, U.S. Consumers are having a hard time servicing their debt and borrowing 78% of the GDP. 78% in debt of the GDP. Debt cannot expand faster than income indefinitely. The sharp debt is occurring at a time when interest rates have never been cheaper. Pressure starts to mount against the consumer as interest rate rises and interest payments become a heavier burden. Without new loans to finance old loans, they must declare bankruptcy. The bubble does not recede slowly. It crashes. Switching to the government sector, in 2005, a debt, federal debt of $8 trillion will expand the government $500 billion in interest payments. 
4.5% of GDP, with little doubt the government can service its own debt. Systemic banking crisis accompany economic crisis. For example, 30% of banks fell in the Great Depression. Dukan points out that the risk is really the $150 trillion derivatives market meltdown. We don't even really talk about derivatives, but uh, that one is the huge, huge iceberg uh, waiting to sink the Titanic. Surplus nations earn their surpluses by U.S. dollars. By investing their dollar surpluses in U.S. dollar assets, the trade partners of the United States help fuel the stock market bubble, facilitating incredible misallocation of corporate um, capital, and by accompanying Fannie Mae debt, contribute to the dangerous rise in U.S. property prices. Where did the money go? The U.S. bond market totaling $2.5 trillion, a $400 billion increase from 2001 to 2002, commercial paper $1.32 trillion, mortgage-related securities $1.1 trillion, new issued corporate bonds $388 billion. Fed agencies' long-term new issues were $453 billion and $659 billion short-term. Treasury gross coupon issues $230 billion and municipal insur- issuance of $196 billion. Surplus nations needed $500 billion of investment vehicles each year in financial corporation and household sector. At present, 40% of the privately held U.S. treasuries is held by foreigners. The risk occurs when the foreign countries decide to sell off for political or economic reasons. For this reason, it's unlikely that the percent will exceed 50%. Surplus nations will need to the private sec, uh, look to the private sector to spend $250 billion and the $800 billion U.S. deficit played part of the safe dollar-denominated asset. Between 2000 and 2002, U.S. equities market lost $8 trillion in market capitalization, or 48% drop, but still maintain a P.E. ratio of 26. Incredible. Surplus nations are less prone to invest in a market with a high P.E. ratio seeking a 15 P.E. viewing the stock market as overvalued. The remaining major investment is direct investment through purchasing U.S. companies, and U.S. companies maintain their traction by keeping their earnings high. A slowing economy will uh, deter foreign investment. And you look at that. U.S. equity markets lost $8 trillion in market capitalization, or a 48% drop. Huh. It's amazing. That much of a drop in the equity market. Um, China's bubble. In China, the loan growth of the commercial banks has amounted to approximately 15 percent at per annum for almost 15 years hmm that is a lot of debt that they're financing um 
almost makes you wonder if they are the first to to risk hyperinflation and and their markets collapse. Uh, to extend loans, banks must have deposits. Much of the deposits the Chinese banks have extended as loans were earned through Chinese businessmen exporting their goods to the U.S. In 2001, China's surplus with the U.S. was equal to 7% of China's GDP. China's GDP growth was 8%. Without its trade deficit with the U.S., China's economy would have grown at a much slower pace, if at all, both because the exporter profits would have been much worse and also because the banks would not have enough deposits to allow them to extend lending so rapidly. The Asian crisis countries avoided deflation by devaluating their currencies and exporting deflation abroad. For example, the devaluation of the South Korean won after the Asian crisis contributed to downward pressure on global semiconductor and steel prices. If surplus nations cannot invest into dollar-denominated assets, they must convert their dollar surplus into their own currencies. The conversion will cause the currencies to appreciate and slow exports and increase imports and cause their economies to recede and depress and recycle the world uh, dollar surpluses. So basically it's working just like gold in because the commodity dollar commodity is working a lot like the way gold worked. In light of the weak financial condition of many of the largest businesses, very few corporations will have debt servicing capability to issue large amounts of new debt. Only the U.S. government will have debt servicing capability to issue large amounts of new debt. Deflation occurs when the supply exceeds demand. It's an efficiency problem that uh, you're trying to pay off the debt, but as you are racing to pay off the debt, you have to increase production and as you increase production, if uh, the demand is not strong, then your supply exceeds demand. In World War One, <clears throat> when the the war began, and in two thousand nineteen seventeen, when the U.S. entered the war, U.S. gold reserves rose sixty four percent. And the idea is, if if you're going to war and you lose the war, then you have to make payments back to the winning country. So I think that the, the idea is to hedge against potential for losing uh, for war reparations so you have a large amount of gold reserve. That's my opinion of what was happening and why the reserves rose at, at 64%. As Europe exchanged its gold for the U.S. Uh, goods, the war ended. Gold continued to flow into the U.S. as allies repaid their war debt. The credit base doubled during this time period. Industrial machinery and equipment output rose by 205% and all producer durables increased by 257%. This surge in industrial capacity created an oversupply in uh, 1926. So you see the beginning of the crash in the market in 29 and also the entry into the U.S. into the Great Depression as uh, as the debt is getting larger. In 
1929, the Fed sold large amounts of government debt and caused the credit to contract by 8%. So they're, they're soaking up the liquidity now and uh, we're trying to get uh, the economy uh, less heated up. And when the dollar earnings of the surplus nations are deposited into their domestic banking systems, those dollars being exogenous to those banking systems act as high-powered money and spark off an explosion of credit creation. Excessive credit creation permits overinvestment, which in turn cause excess capacity and deflation, because deflation is actually too much inventory. So long as the huge U.S. Uh, current account deficits continue to flood the world with dollars, Global deflationary pressures are very likely to continue to build as reckless credit creation results in more industrial capacity that can be absorbed at the prevailing price levels. Falling price, product prices make it impossible for the business to repay their uh, bank loans. A similar process occurs when excess, excessive uh, credit creation causes asset price bubbles in the stock market and property market. Rapid loan growth causes asset prices to rise. Frequently, business banks accept the inflated assets as a collateral for additional loans. This process continued for so long in Japan that the Imperial Gardens in Tokyo came to be considered as Californian. Eventually, it becomes impossible to pay the interest expense on such extraordinarily overvalued asset. The owner default, the banks then refuse to make new loans, the house of cards in the asset prices begins to shake, panic sets in, the bubble pops, and the banks fail. During 1999 and 2000, finally two years of the new paradigm bubble, imports to the U.S. jumped by $307 billion and increased to 33% over the level in 1998. Then in 2001, U.S. imports fell $79 billion, or by 6%. The impact of the decline in U.S. demand on the rest of the world was extraordinary. That year, the economic growth rates of the United States' major trending partners decelerated abruptly. Stock markets experienced a spiral downward effect. Commodity prices fell. Government finances came under strain around the world. The same consequences can be expected during the second phase of the reception when the U.S. consumer is finally forced to stop spending more than he earns. At that time, imports to the, into the U.S. will decline and all other countries that rely on exporting to the U.S. will suffer. China will be one of the hardest hit since it's a leading supplier of cheap consumer goods to the U.S., when China exports to U.S. decline, it will not have cash to act as an engine of growth for the rest of Asia. Asia should not harbor false hopes of China replacing the United States as an importer of last resorts. Instead, Asia policymakers should recognize the era of exports-led growth will once end the U.S. current account deficits can no longer be financed and they should now uh, should act now to develop sufficient domestic demand.